All right, um, I'll uh, just start by saying uh, welcome to this uh, conversation. This is a public meeting. It's a recorded meeting. It'll be posted um, for others to view later. This is the um, Lawrence Douglas County Metropolitan Planning Commission ad hoc subcommittee that's tasked to work with staff on uh, commercial wind regulations. And today we are on a call with um, uh, engineering team at Black and Veatch. Um, what I'd like to do, if we could, is just start with a quick uh, round of introductions. Um, start it here in the room. Charlie, would you mind uh, kicking I, us off? I'm Charlie Thomas. Uh, live in the unincorporated areas of Douglas County, so I represent the, the unincorporated areas. I've been on this planning commission for not quite two years. Mike? Mike Kelso, uh, I'm the newbie here. I've been on the planning commission for about four months. I also must, like Charlie, live out in the unincorporated areas of the county. I'm Gary Rexrode, the one city person on the team. Um, glad to be here. Prashant? Yeah, I'm uh, Prashant DeVore, and uh, I'm a farmer. I've been on the planning commission for about eight months. Uh, I raise sheep, so looking forward to hearing and learning from you guys. Thank you. And Dusty, if we could talk about your team for just a minute. <laughs> I'm the technical leader of our ecology and environmental sciences section here. Um, I have with me today Jeff Samansky, who is our senior acoustical engineer and specialist, and John Richter, who is our senior biologist here. Uh, I did also invite um, Steve Block from Denver. I am not sure if he'll be able to make it today. He was on vacation, but if he does make it, he may be joining a little bit late. All right, hope that he can. We have some questions for the expert on siting. That'd be great. So just uh, quickly, Dusty, just for the purpose of um, having us on the public record, um, uh, we've contracted with Black and & Veatch and with you um, for this time today. Um, you're, you're working with, for us. Um, you're not connected with um, any uh, industry development group any potential applicants this is a conversation specifically between four and and with us is that true yes we are simply here to provide advice and information and not we're not for or against any form of development just just here for your benefit got it thank you so much so we had uh, we had sent a list of questions, and you've provided a great deal of information back on those things. And um, we're not going to necessarily try to follow through that and try to drain each one of those elements. But I'll, I'll start in sound, which is kind of at the top of the list of the questions we'd asked. And then this group will um, kind of take us where they have an interest to go. Um, we do want to get at some key things today. We want to get at key understanding of sound and how we should regulate, key understanding of flicker and glint and how we should regulate, key understanding of setbacks and how we should regulate, a couple of other things in there. So um, help us, if you can, you know, think about the questions we're asking in the context of where we're trying to go with that. All right? Yes. Well, if I could, uh, Jeff, to start with, um, one of the questions that I'd asked um, uh, previous was around how in, in measuring sound um, do you differentiate in that measurement between ambient and what's generated by the tower and I'm not sure I'm smart enough to ask that question well but what I what I'm imagining is if I'm standing at a property line 
how can I, how do you measure what the tower's producing versus what is ambient in a way that, that, that can show up in regulation? Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's, uh, there's, there's a couple of answers, different answers that, you, that I could come up with for that. The most obvious would be to uh, make a measurement while the turbine is operating. And then what is often done, this is this would be during like a performance test or a compliance test after the tur- after the uh, wind turbines and uh, wind energy facility has been constructed. Um, you would make a measurement that was adjacent to one or more of these turbines, and then you would uh, ha- you know radio into dispatch, make a call to someone, say, "Hey, I need turbines." Two, three, and four shut off for a background measurement, and they would they would park those turbines. Then over the course of the next, you know, ten minutes to an hour, however long you wanted to to make that measurement, you could just measure the ambient. Now, it's not a side, it's it's not exact comparison because it's not at the exact same time. You can't measure the ambient at the exact same time as you measure a source that's part of that same soundscape. So, but it is, if you're getting within the same sort of time frame where the wind's blowing in the same direction and the traffic conditions are about the same, you, you can make a good comparison between the ambient and the tower. And then what happens basically is those two sound levels would be compared. And uh, if it's possible to correct the one with the turbine for the con- contribution of the background, you would just make that correction. Um, what we see in some cases is that the sound levels are so close that that correction can't be made because the the wind turbine itself isn't isn't making enough noise to get above high enough above that level of ambient so um that may be a good thing uh we we notice a a lot of um, our measurements that when we actually go out to do this compliance even without correcting for that ambient everything is in compliance with the with the regulatory limit whatever that might be so um, that's always our first step is to just make that measurement initially see where we're at and if it, if the turbine's operating at a maximum capacity and you know the wind's blowing in the right direction and you've got all the other boxes checked and you still pass then there's really no need to go back and make a correction and that's what we're hoping for you know that's that's really that's that's the that's the ideal condition but it doesn't always work out that way but but that's what we hope for so it makes me wonder what kinds of things can uh, an operator do to affect the sound output from a turbine um the there's there's actually there's actually a limited number of choices there. It's a very simple source, so there's not a whole lot you could do. Um, there are uh, upgrades that you can choose to purchase with the tower itself. Um, some manufacturers offer what they call um, low noise trailing edge blades, uh, where they modify the blades in such a way as I, I often describe as kind of like the feathers of a hawk. You know, they they kind of uh, they uh, make modifications to the trailing edge of the blade in order to make it quieter as it moves through the air. That tends to reduce sound by maybe a one or two decibels. It's not a huge, it's not a huge difference. Um, and then there is uh, li- limiting the power output of some turbines. So if they're in a situation where if the wind blows in a certain direction, they're creeping above the, the regulatory limit, they can, um, the 
manufacturers can supply a way to program them so that, okay, when it hits that right, just that condition, it'll limit the output so that it doesn't, and by limiting the megawatt output, it also limits the sound output of it. And they can, they can do that to the tune of one or two, three decibels, however many decibels you need, they can, they can limit that output um, during operation. And then the other thing is just good sighting. Um, if, it, if, there's, if the turbines are sighted well to begin with, you shouldn't have to do those other things. So, What does but, that um, mean? What does a good sighting mean in that example? Uh, it, uh, having a, an acoustical model done prior to any construction, you know, as part of the permitting process, requiring acoustical modeling as part of that. Um, the, the acoustical models for these wind parks I have found are quite accurate. Um, they tend to produce results that are pretty consistent with what are measured in the field, like within a few decibels. So um, that's pretty reliable in my world. <laughs> so so uh, having requiring that uh, model to be done up front uh, can help place those turbines in such a way that they're not that they're meeting the requirements before they even consider any mitigation so, options. So when you say place them in a way, are you talking about proximity to a receptor? Yeah, proximity um, to a receptor is primarily distance to that receptor is, yep. is the, the big driver, yeah. Okay, all right. Your, if I can jump in. Yeah, please. So your recommendation on the first question was uh, whether we set it as a 45 decibel or ambient plus five, and you said mm -hmm. set it at the 45, uh, otherwise it can cause issues for the turbine company on being able to operate. Isn't that how I read that? Uh, yeah, so the, uh, the, most, the most common way I see an ambient plus five um, regulation implemented is when the ambient is above the floor that you want to set for your, for your limit. Um, so, you know, setting it at 45 um, or 40, I mean, whichever, you know, you're comfortable with um, for your community, setting that level and then saying, well, if the ambient is higher than that, then, then giving, giving, basically giving credit for that. In other words, if the ambient is already at 49, there's no, there's not really any need to force a turbine company or a developer to be lower than that ambient if that ambient's already higher. Um, so that's that's where I see the ambient plus five implemented the most. If you do it the other way and say forty five is your top, and then it, but if the ambient's lower, then we're going ambient plus five. That gets into some situations in, in rural areas where they may drive the level so low that development becomes restricted and. and Developers can't even put turbines in places um, because of rural areas can get uh, can get sound levels that get down into the low 30s at night. So say 30 decibels, and if you if you limit a um, if you limit a developer to hitting 35 decibels, you've you've much you've restricted much more of the space that they can that they can put turbines. Which I mean. Um, it may be what you want, but <laughs> it's not. Uh, it, it tends to drive drive developers away. But you, one of the things that I heard you say earlier is whatever the community mm -hmm. decided was that part of what you said for this. Uh, just just now. Yeah. Yeah, I was saying like whatever you select for your limit for that for that lower limit. Is that, is there an kind of a. I, I'm not a big one on saying industry standard and we just superimpose it on 
Douglas County, but is there kind of a generalized industry standard for the decibel level? Yeah, it, 45 is 45 is the one I see most often. And what that is that is kind of the lower the lowest restriction. I do see some of them that go lower to about 40, but 40 tends to get into a range where you're you're getting down to an area where if you're really driving that level down to 40, you're restricting development and, and you're in a range where not many people complain anyway. So it's like that, that sweet spot tends to work out to be like 45. It tends to work out well for a lot of communities. Okay. Can I go? So, hey, Jeff, follow up on that. So you said um, at night it could fall to 30 decibels. What is what? What kind of setback is that? Is there is there a correlation between setback and thirty decibels, roughly? Yeah. So so if you're at four, if you, say you're at, say you place a turbine and you're meeting that forty five limit, yeah, at, at, a, at a certain distance, in order to get down to thirty, you would have to uh, you would have to quadruple the distance. Wow. Roughly, roughly speaking. So if you're at if you're at say you know fifteen hundred feet to get to forty five, and you want to get to thirty instead, then you you'd be at at least six thousand feet, if not. So you know it becomes. That's why I said it becomes far too, far too restrictive in many cases. But the um, so in the daytime it's forty five at fifteen hundred, but that same at night it could be. 30, the same 1500 could be, what, I, what I'm trying to say is, um, it, it, is it possible for it to be louder at night? You know, the, the, the wind turbines make so much noise at night that it overwhelms, you know, because if it's 30 decibels at night, that means that the property owner is probably going to hear it, right? That is that kind of yeah. What, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, if if they if if you're in a typical if you're in a rural area where the typical sound levels get that low, and so they so night after night they experience 30 decibels. It's typical that that sort of level is kind of typical in the desert. We we tend to see a little bit higher levels around here with the wind blows and things like that. So uh, we're probably more in the high 30s for our for our lower limits, but. We're Regardless, um, when if if the turbine itself is at 45 and your limit is say 40 or less, then yeah, they will they will notice that 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 source that turbine is a little bit louder than what they're normally accustomed to. Um, but what's what what research the research we've looked into has found is that even at 45, it's not really a, a sound level that's driving a lot of complaints. I see. It, it, once it gets at nighttime, once it gets up into that 50 range and higher, that's when people start complaining, especially in rural areas. It's not so, it's much louder than they're used to now. It's 10 or more dB above what they're used to. That's 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 not usually not a, not well received. I see. Thank you. Mm -hmm. How about infrasound? One of the things that I, I thought you had said was there, there's a lot of misinformation out floating around um, that infrasound needed more research is what I got from what you wrote. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's, it's, 
different what the, the limited what I what I know about that I, I focus on the hearing range so my, my world is 20 Hertz to 20 kilohertz that's the normal range of human hearing what you're talking about goes lower than that it's a little a little bit out of my area of expertise but what I do know is that the one thing that they have found is that different people have different sensitivities to that sort of thing and I, I, I feel like from the articles that I've read what they're finding is is that there's a small percentage of the population that has some sensitivity to that that experiences something like that I spent all of last week working around wind turbines I was I was doing some compliance testing up in up in Michigan and we were you know a few hundred feet away from turbines for the entire week and I don't experience anything like that I don't sense I don't I don't have any sensation of that so I don't I can't relate to it firsthand mm-hmm. um, but you know that's not to say that somebody could be sensitive to that sort of thing I, I feel like given the nature of the source I, I don't feel like wind turbines could put out that much enough energy to really be harmful to someone on the infrasonic range I mean if that were the case that I'd be I feel like I'd be experiencing something you know I mean it'd be if it regardless of whether you sense it it should be harmful to you and I'm not I'm not getting that so um I don't feel like the, the levels of infrasound from wind turbines are high enough to be of a concern, but that's my opinion. I, I don't, there's, there's, they, I feel like there's a lot of research being done and we're going to learn more and we'll see. It's the, it's the only thing I can tell you to that. Okay. I, I, I have seen, I think, interesting things about infrasound that even I will say, well, that's a little bizarre to, to do. It is hard for me as a layperson to ferret out what is misinformation and what is not. And I've read a big study from Europe that talked about infrasound and whether the, the results were greater inside a home perhaps than outside. But I, I have no way of knowing the validity of that study. It was a fairly new one, mm-hmm. but I, I'm faced with things like that. Mm-hmm. So Jeff, you are the final authority. <laughs> Jeff, do you, have a, do you have a sense that uh, infrasound attenuates differently than audible? Oh, certainly, yeah. Slower or faster or? Uh, it's much harder to attenuate things the lower in frequency you go because they tend to they tend to ignore like like we can we can block a lot of sound right from from normal sources just using walls or you know the walls in your home will block a lot of the noise from outside right um, and those are upper frequency ranges when you get lower and lower those wavelengths are so long they just ignore those barriers that go right through them so um, infrasound infrasound actually travels best in the upper atmosphere is what I've I, I've I kind of learned that from some projects I had in uh, college but um, it's 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 an interesting phenomenon um, it's uh, it's hard to quantify subjective um, like what how people experience that i think that's i think that's the research that's ongoing right now it's just true to say that you you're not aware of any cases where studies where infrasound is shown to be harmful to people associated with wind energy yeah that's that's fair right. i agree with that how about pure tone 
I know I just jumped right in there, Charlie. How about pure tone? Um, we similar to infrasound. There's, I've heard, we've heard different things about that. Is it is it uh, is that a harmful thing? Is it reasonable to um, set limits on? Um, is it controllable? Um, is it harmful? Well, anything can be harmful at a high enough level. Um, from the sources that we're talking about, I don't think that's the case. Um, pure tones are pretty rare for wind, the wind turbines I've been around. It's, it's a pretty rare occurrence. Um, the the step-up transformers that they use that are at the base of the turbines actually do produce a tone. It's not audible very far away, though, because those tend to be smaller transformers. And that would be the hum that you guys would probably be familiar with from like electrical lights or, or that sort of thing. It's that same hum that you get from the transformer. The turbine itself, can occasionally put out tones. The wind has the wind conditions get in the right place, and and you can get some some pure tones from that. I, I wouldn't call them harmful. They research has shown that they can be much more annoying. <laughs> so uh, in that regard, yes, it's good to regulate them because um, lower levels of pure tone noise relative to the same noise without that pure tone are, are more annoying. So if we have two sources, one is they're both at 50 decibels, for example, one has a pure tone and one doesn't, people will consider the one with the pure tone more annoying and, you know, aggravating and that sort of thing. So um, it's, there's a couple different ways you could, you could regulate that. The most common one I see is just to refer back to the guidelines that are in the US EPA, because the US EPA has some guidelines for um, controlling tonal noise that are based on frequency, and they tend to be pretty reliable. Um, I think those same those same uh, recommendations have found, wound up in an ISO standard as well, so they're accepted uh, internationally as well as in the U.S. One of the things I'm looking at other states, it seemed like in New, the state of New York, pure tone was written into every regulation there was in a way I didn't understand it when I read it, but it seemed like somebody in the state of New York thought pure tone was worthy of being regulated down to one third of an octave of a whatever of a whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, that, it's a there's a little paragraph in the that the US EPA guidelines, and it's been it's promulgated its way through uh, lots of other jurisdictions um, and adopted as as basically code in the places you saw in New York, as well as lots of other places across the country. So, well, Cece and Sandy, not right this minute, but could you? If you don't already have that, could we get that language and, and consider that when we're finalizing this on Pure Tone? Thank you. Uh, no, back to just sound in general. Obviously, as the towers get bigger, the blades get longer, the potential for more sound exists. Because of the geography in Douglas County, as opposed to, say, western Kansas, where everything's flat, you might easily have a tower that's 100 or 200 feet the base of it above maybe the the closest neighbor and uh will that create potentially more noise to that closest neighbor that might be a non-participant than if the tower the base was at the same vertical level as the home or building if that makes sense 
It does make sense, and I think the answer to that is it's a, it, that's a good reason to have the uh, acoustical model as a requirement for pre-construction because the, they can account for terrain elevation in the acoustical model and those sources at different heights relative to the receptors. Um, I don't know if Steve Block's gotten on yet, but one of the things that Steve Block's group does um, when they cite these uh, areas for wind turbine development is they're going through and they're looking for all the buildings and they're and they're marking off buildings or what which buildings are residences which buildings are barns which buildings are and then when we we get that information directly from um, St Steve's team and put it in our acoustical model so we know where exactly where every home is and at what elevation because we pull all that terrain data from the GIS databases so um, to answer your question, yes, sound exposure could vary with elevation, relative elevation of different sources and receivers. Uh, the, the way to check that and make sure it's still meeting re regulatory requirements is through modeling. Okay, thank you. So even if they're open, mm -hmm. well, right. our job is to set that, that limit. Right, and, so it's a, yeah. yeah. All right, anything else on sound? Jeff, thanks a million. Um, can I jump over to, to Flickr and Glint for a couple minutes? I'm not sure who on the team is going to take that. Um, that's what Steve Black was going to help us cover. It does not look like he's been able to join today. Um, so we can either get back to you on those questions or I can okay. try to do the best I can to answer some of your questions. All right. Um, well, it was, uh, I, I wanted to click into it far enough. Uh, I'd indicated in our notes that we're considering a zero uh, shadow flicker regulation and just wanted to visit about that some of the the indication I had was that that might going to zero as would have a significant impact on annual generation at the wind facility um, and I'm my question is I'm trying to square how 30 hours of shadow flicker imposed on a non-participating resident um, if it's really only 30 hours a year, how that represents an annual uh, power generation um, issue that's significant. So I'm just trying to make sense of those two things. If you'd rather we wait for Steve, then we can do that. It might be better for him to answer that one, but he just noted that it was dependent on the density of the houses in that area and how many were participants, I think. Okay. Oh, meaning that if it's large enough and over broad enough swath that 30 hours in one place isn't really the only um, right. indicator. Of, I got you. Okay. All right. Because I, I had several questions about Flickr as well um, that, I'm, that we will get clarified soon. So, thanks. Um, could we talk a little bit about... Um, I guess a couple things. And guys, please jump in anytime, anywhere. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, something that happened up in Marshall County. I, I don't know if you're aware of the, the turbine that was struck by lightning um, in Marshall County. Um, and it, uh, the report is that it shed or threw fiberglass um, some distance away from where the damage had happened. So it, it kind of puts a, a little bit of a lens on, brings up front the, you know, the importance of having extraordinary event um, uh, regulations. 
So first, are you aware of, of that? And, and do you have a, a sense for the, or any, not just a sense, do you have any, any data to support how often lightning strikes or, or failures of that nature take place? Um, I wasn't aware of that particular situation, but I know that um, all turbines I think that we work with on our projects have built-in lightning protection. So it's designed to uh, not damage the turbine if they do get struck by lightning. I think that happens on a fairly regular basis, as you can imagine, with them being as tall as they are, 500 plus feet, and then also being sighted on tops of hills or higher elevation areas a lot of the time. Um, as we said in our responses, I think those kinds of accidents are pretty rare. Um, I think it's less than 1% of the turbines that are installed that will fail in that way or in some kind of way that's kind of an extraordinary event like that. But um, yeah, I think that's why we make sure to have setbacks too in case something like that happens and there's anything thrown that residences and other things are far enough away that there would not be any damage, hopefully. Gotcha. Do you have uh, do you have any recommendations or experience with language uh, that you suggest for people in their regulations on how to deal with the aftermath of something like that? If a turbine fails in a significant way that you know has a multi-thousand foot footprint, I don't think that's something that I've seen when I've been working on wind projects before. Certainly, something that you can include if that's a priority for the county. Any, any guess, and I guess the wrong word, um, what a, a typical turbine today, today's models from whatever manufacturer, what kind of wind speed in a storm, whether straight line winds or even say tornado like winds, are they built to withstand? I believe, and Steve's the expert on this, but I believe I've seen that the automatic shutdown speed is around 60 miles an hour, something like that. And there may be some that go a little bit higher than that, but they do have automatic overspeed shutdown provisions built in. Okay, right, okay, I, I agree with the shutdown, but, okay, let's say it shuts down to 60. Let's say a 100 mile an hour straight wind hits it, or a EF2 to EF4. I mean, we had an EF4 here in Douglas County four years ago. How, what what are they built to withstand if they're shut down? The tower itself and the blades and the hub. That would be something that would be um, in the specifications from the original manufacturer. They usually list up speed. So it would depend on the manufacturer, I think. But um, I've seen somewhere around 120 miles an hour. Uh, one of the things that when Gary brought up about this blade that exploded and the people say it went 2,100 feet, 2,200 feet, I forget what the exact distance was, into a hay field. One of the things that I liked in your report was that we needed to have regulations that said owner-operators are responsible for acts of God or whatever the, the terminology was that you used. Uh, is there s some standard language? I'm, I'm guessing Sandy and Cece already have that, but is there some kind of standard language that says the landowner is not responsible for things that are out of the landowner's uh, 
I believe in most contracts that landowners sign with the, the energy company that's going to be the developer, they have some kind of force majeure provision like that. But, I mean, I've seen, you know, various versions depending on the developer, but it's fairly standard. So we could uh, probably get some of that for you just as an example if you'd like to see it. What, what about for uh, non-participating landowners? So in that case, there wouldn't be a contract. So we'd have to have some language in our regulations right. for that, right? So if you have any recommendations on that. Yeah, I'm not sure um, to the, the degree that the county would be able to um, enforce something like that between the developer and the landowner. But you certainly could include a provision for that kind of force majeure event for non-participants also. For those of us who don't speak force majeure, would you give... Uh... <laughs> That's basically just what you were saying before, just an act of God type of event. You know, something unforeseeable and out of the normal. Okay. That may be a good question for county legal to assist. Yeah. Gary, just, it's not really uh, an act of God question, but um, we, we visited a, a wind farm south of here, and it was recommended that if you were getting close to a wind turbine, you had to wear a hard hat. So if I'm a farmer, um, and I have livestock that are around the wind turbine, is, would you recommend any kind of protective gear, or is that just sort of, you know, a good practice, but not, how would you, how would you, what, what would the recommendation be for that? Like, how close can you get and not worry about something happening, or have to worry about something happening? I think, in my opinion, and from what I've seen, that's kind of an abundance of caution type provision that people feel more comfortable if they're protected with a hard hat. Okay. I've personally stood directly under wind turbines multiple times doing field work and not had anything happen, not been wearing a hard hat. Got it. Um, and I haven't seen that uh, in anyone's ordinances. I don't believe that okay. you know, anyone in proximity would need hard hat or other PPE type protection. Okay, thank you. Um, so, okay, if you guys like to talk about water a little bit. Okay, yes, in just a second. So, coming back to the flicker that you can't answer yet, and hopefully he's going to show up. There was there were some comments in, in what you wrote about farmers out doing the agricultural issues and animals out at the property lines that... It, it is, and I wrote it down, um, may consider outdoor shadow flicker limits that it can, it didn't see a lot of research, didn't see a lot of evidence, but that there are still, they could be affected by flicker out in their fields working uh, that would be one of the things I'd like some more clarification on. We I think um, when Steve was answering that question, he was talking about um, as far as for any outdoor area, participating or not participating outside of a home. I believe he was trying to make that distinction between flicker limits applying to a home or an occupied structure versus just anywhere outdoors um, when he said that the outdoor limits were not common. <clears throat> We're going to need to talk and, um, about that, right? Yeah. Yeah, he said that 
Right. They could be based on the distance from the outside wall of any non-participating structure, as an example, to be protective for the non-participant resident there. We have that'd just be something to to look at. Yeah, we're for, right at that. Yeah. Okay, so now we'll have to set a time with Steve. If he's, I don't think he's going to come today, so we'll okay. maybe next week we can get a little bit of time to answer some of those questions. Um, yeah. On water, um, changing the subject a little bit, um, we've received a considerable amount of of uh, information suggesting that um, wind turbines um, can or will. Uh, damage aquifers um, to a point that it affects uh, the quality of water, drinking water. Um, uh, I, I read in your notes that that it really is, the way I'm paraphrasing, it really is dependent upon the depth of where drinking water comes from. So, so my, my primary question is just accepting that. Douglas County, are there areas in Douglas County where the aquifers are shallow enough that laying in wind turbine foundations is going to be a hazard? I'm not sure on the specific Douglas County information, but um, on the multiple wind projects I've worked with in the Midwest, I haven't seen anyone uh, show any kind of information like that where drinking water aquifers have been affected negatively by um, the foundations that go down 60 feet or thereabouts. So, um, do you mind sharing the source, or do you know the source of the information that's saying that they're significantly affected? There are there are a couple of studies that are regularly cited. One is in Ontario. There's another one in Illinois. Um, those two seem to pop up quite a bit from multiple directions. Multiple people are sending some of that same information. Um, haven't been able to find anything in Kansas. So let me ask that question in a different way. Um, if we're writing this regulation, how should we how should we articulate what needs to be done to assure that um, we know about any instance of, of an uh, involvement with an aquifer? It also appears that John has unmuted and may he's a senior biologist. He may have additional points to add. I cannot hear what you just said. John is unmuted. Okay. I had a connection issue, sorry there. Um, hey John? Yes. Um, could you repeat that? I was just offline for a little bit. Sure, the, we're talking about water and um, the impact of wind turbines on uh, of aquifers, drinking water. Um, and if I'm not saying enough of the right words, please jump in and, and don't let me skip over something that's important. But the question is, um, how should we write our language and regulations so that we assure we identify and prevent the placement of wind turbines in a way that might damage um, our water supply? Yeah, um, I, I think to start with, I'm not aware of any circumstances where there's been you know, reputable evidence of uh, commercial scale wind farms adversely um, affecting an aquifer. Um, I think you might want to temper that with maybe looking at how a wind farm could more uh, locally impact your water resources. And there I'd probably look at um, public um, water drinking wells. I know there's still many public wells being used in agricultural areas. Um, that's Those are 
items you can either obtain by interviewing landowners. Uh, most commonly, they would disclose um, where their water source is. And the issue with that would probably be when the wind farm is constructed. Um, Dusty might be able to help here, but when they dig the foundations uh, for the turbines, it's a quite a large footprint. Um, and they, they go down to pretty good depths and you know, make a big hole in the ground. And that would probably be the, the, the single activity uh, during the construction of a wind farm that could result in some maybe localized impacts to groundwater. Um, but again, I think if you're conscientious and citing and learning where those public wells are, um, it could possibly mitigate any adverse effects for that. So um, do we need to set a distance from? Yes, you could include that in your setbacks table if you're going to have that in your ordinance. Just, what, what you know, any known drinking water well, X feet distance from that. What, what distance should that be? Yeah, that distance, it, it, it might be somewhat subjective, subjective based on topography and, you know, how that water's, you know, working in the ground at any given location. Um, so I don't know if there's any single number that would work. It would probably be more tempered by how it lays on the landscape in regard to how they're siding their turbines. Um, it could be pretty sloppy out there when they're constructing. Um, there'll be a lot of dirt, exposed dirt, um, heavy rains are going to wash it around. So, um, I think it, it, it could be something that, that can be passed along to the construction contractor. So they're aware of where those wells are and maybe work on identifying what's an appropriate setback. Is, is it well, the something else you could do is just require monitoring throughout construction, checking with the landowner to make sure there are no, you know, ongoing effects as the work occurs, and or uh, you know, requiring the developer to mitigate any impacts that do occur to anyone's drinking water. It, is it reasonable as we have multiple rivers and lakes here around here that serve? Uh, and the water table is obviously high in places. Is it reasonable to include something that says, if when they're digging one a foundation and they hit the water table, they got to move. They can't do it there if they've if they've hit the the upper part of the water table for that area, whatever wherever it might happen to be. Yeah, I don't know if during um, pre-construction investigations there's geotechnical done um, at the location of, of each um, turbine so they can know um, what they're building into regarding, um, I say, foundation stability. And they would be able to determine if they're hitting a water table during those geotech investigations. So that would be more of an upfront activity during the project planning stages. Um, yeah, I've seen it happen where even when they do do geotechnical borings and assess the geology in the area, they're going to drill once they get in the field. It happens to be more wet than was planned or was thought. So they have moved things in the past, but I don't know. Um, that might be prohibitive to a developer thinking that they might have to move things after they've gotten that far um, if they happen to hit the water table when they're constructing. I just, I just know I'm thinking of the... Uh... The, the river bottom say, and this is outside the area where our 
the company was most likely going to propose anything, but along the Car River between the Car and the Wakarusa, the the well at my in-laws' house, they hit water at like 40 feet, so it's it's low. So I know like like that would be a an area where not a good idea. And, and yeah, they usually yeah, you water those foundations just to make sure there's not water coming in while they're constructing, so that somewhat mitigates things, but um, I don't know if it would be feasible to move any time the, the water was found. Once a, once a, let's just imagine a scenario where you hit a water table, somebody's pulling drinking water out of that however far away from you, and their water quality changes. Does that return to normal after construction's complete, or is that a long-term impact? I guess a fall. Yeah, I want to likely return after construction was complete uh, after a little while. Um, but of course, you'd have to monitor that specific situation. Does, is there anything that they put in the ground in the foundation, cement and rebar, is there any anything either that or beyond that, that when it's in the ground exposed to um, someone's drinking water, that's a hazard? Does it change the pH? Does it, add, does it do anything that changes what nature has already put there for them? Yeah. Um, Alice, I don't know if you have any other information, John. Yeah, I was gonna say maybe uh, tangential to that. I mean, yeah, these these turbine foundations are just a kind of like putting a flower stem in a giant concrete pot, right? I mean, it's a massive amount of concrete and rebar. Um, so it may be more on the operations and maintenance side is um, how they actually maintain um, these areas to to be non-vegetated, especially around the turbine base and the turbine access roads. Um, I don't know if they would be applying some kind of uh, chemicals that would um, sub suppress vegetation growth. I mean, there's trade names such as Sahara and and others that would be, you know, a, a, applied herbicides you know, just during the operation of the project to keep these roads clear of vegetation. That's, that would be my, my larger concern with the drinking water it would be herbicide use rather than the temporary construction impacts. And would you have a concern about that just in, because it's herbicide in general, or would you have a herb, uh, concern about that because of its proximity to um, the foundation and that being a point of entry to the, to the groundwater? could be both, both really um, and plus you know the herbicides used you know to keep vegetation from growing over a long period of time you know those are going to have a long residual effect right they're, they're going to apply them and they would be active for months at a time uh, so I, I think ultimately you know an excavated area for a turbine foundation will pretty much return to normal functioning, um, you know, once they get the site in operation and the soil stabilized around it. I know you guys have probably never heard this at all, where there are potential for wind turbines going in. People get scared. They get anxious and say things that, uh, 
may not have a factual basis. One of the things that the people hate to hear the word mitigate damage. Is there, <laughs> is there specific language that, and I know our lawyers are gonna look at this, um, the water wells in the portion of Douglas County where potentially wind turbines are gonna be, are very prevalent. And a lot of people talk to us about um, the fear that they have and where you answer yes, it should come back to normal, you'd have to keep testing it is what you said. Um, that, that is a fear that people have that, gosh, if it doesn't come back to normal, I'm two miles from the nearest um, city water, county water, rural water to get there. Is it reasonable to say, well, wind turbine company, you're gonna have to put in two miles of water line to get to this well, to get to this farm. That's what people are also scared about. Um, and we get, all of us get information about wells that are damaged forever and all the mercury that's shaken out of the dust that goes into my well and all the arsenic that goes into it. Uh, and I don't hear you saying you have the research that would back that up that says. Not that I have seen though. Okay. Um, I think some of the mitigation could just be enhanced water treatment on the well water that the developer might be required to pay for something like that rather than having to run lines to city water um, if something like that would be amenable to the landowners. And as long as we have language in that specific, do we need, do you think in your experience, do we need to specifically talk about things or does that mean, well, you didn't talk about this, so, or do we just have a general? Um, it's probably easier to enforce if you have some specific options that would be acceptable to people in the county. You know, sometimes you could say it's required to be mitigated by this, like give one option that you want it to be or one of these three options and give several options that could be done or just to the satisfaction of the landowner if you want that to be the ultimate arbiter of things. Well, certainly the landowners would want that, I, yeah. I can assure you. Yeah. So, so I just want to go back to the, the subject of what's, what's in the foundation and as it, as it makes contact with groundwater potentially. Um, I get herbicide and pesticide. I, I get that. And if there's easier egress for that around a foundation, okay, that's a direct risk from it. But otherwise, herbicide and pesticide is pretty commonly used. Right in in, in uh, cultivation, what I'm what I really want to know definitively is the the materials, all the materials of, of any source of any kind that's put into the ground as a part of a foundation. If there is a negative effect of that being placed there on water or or anything else, water primarily. Long term. Okay, that would be something that. I would need to make sure to uh, look into a little further and get back to you on. Okay. Is that, uh, I don't like it at all, but I, I was affected then. I was stunned when I saw you said 
could be the base up to 60 feet down and what I've heard is 30, 35 feet from companies on the base right below the tower. So the 60 feet, is that fairly standard or? From the projects I've worked on, yeah, that's what I've seen. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen any shallower ones, John, on the ones you worked on in Kansas. Yeah, I'm, I probably can't comment on, on depth. It is primarily, well, it is driven by the geotech and what's required to sufficiently hold, you know, anchor that turbine. So, a lot of cement. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of my experience has been at the wind farms in central Kansas. That's the Smoky Hills Wind Farm and the Post Rock Wind Farm. That'd be Ellsworth and Wilson, Kansas, respectively. Um, a lot of rock out there, so they had some pretty stout uh, material to work with. Um, I think maybe one thing, Gary, is you're you're focusing on the, you know, the you know the work done for the turbine you know foundations you know connecting these wind parks there's miles and miles of underground cabling um buried at depth and i've seen that bring up a lot of rock material especially in central kansas where they run a trencher and they're essentially just trenching through solid rock in some places and you know dealing with you know what they need to backfill and you know how that could impact groundwater as well so I'm just trying to expand kind of some of your comment and yeah. how that could apply too. All right. That's a great point. Thank you. So you're, they're out there, they're pouring an almost unimaginable amount of cement. They're setting up batch plants, right, to create the, the cement? Right. What's their source of water out there for that? Uh, it depends on the location. I couldn't say for sure what they would be using. Um, Are they going to typically drill their own well and suck it out of that? That's what I'm wondering. Some do. Uh, some use local water. Gary just got reprimanded for <laughs> continually <laughs> clicking his pen. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> I saw that motion, but I didn't know what it was. <laughs> Sorry about that, everybody. Sorry about that. Is Nervous habit. Is, is he an unwanted noise source? <laughs> well, you know, well I'm liking you better all the time, Jeff. <laughs> so, so some do drill their own wells. I hadn't even considered that. Um, yeah, some people or some construction companies will get a well permit just like anyone else and use that as a source of water um, if there's no other convenient or easily accessible source in that area. It's a lot of water. You'd need to do that. All right. Anything else on water, team? I, again, just I, it, is, it is hard. I get stuff sent to us from many places and stuff I look up, it is very difficult to know who to listen to. And you guys come with great credentials, um, and we are trying to get people with great credentials. And at the same time, I hear you saying more research, especially on the last pages of, of what you did, more research needs to be done into various areas to, to make sure um, what the long-term impacts 
are on things. Certainly Douglas County has experienced, uh, is, is it a Superfund site or co-op? Some, some environmental disaster that requires cleanup? Yeah, is that what, you're is that what we have out there at farm farmland? I don't know how it's classified, but, <laughs> don't but that's also what people are worried about. They'll say, Charlie, we don't know what we don't know. Are we walking down a blind alley here? Uh, you guys have done wind turbine projects, consulted on them for years and years. Do you see a change from 40 years ago to now? Do you see uh, industry? I, I shouldn't say I laughed at your windmill when Gary said, <laughs> but, but you said, this is what I like. I like the the ones that go like this and it's safer, but they're not going to be, is what you said, I thought. So what do you see then as far as the technology that addresses some of these concerns for any of you? Um, well, I think they're always, the wind turbine manufacturers are always trying to make better turbines, more efficient turbines, um, safer turbines as far as environmental impacts. Um, and turbines that are, you know, require less maintenance and manipulation of things like the the oil up in the nacelle and things like that that have the potential to affect anything. Um, I know that turbines are getting bigger over time, and um, I think we said in our answer that they're moving toward where we have to use fewer turbines on a project to generate the same amount of power, which is beneficial, hopefully, to everyone, so you don't have to fight as many. Um, not as much concern, but um, other than that, is there anything else that um, well, John would like to add or adjust to that? Um, I guess regarding turbines, I think the trend has been, they've been increasing in height and megawatt nameplate capacity. Um, I think you know, they've definitely, you know, been showing that trend. And I think a little bit more dispersed across the landscape. You know, originally when they started doing wind, they put them in strings and fairly close together. And now I'm seeing them much more dispersed. So your project footprints are much larger um, in, in respect to how it was done traditionally. So it's taking up just a lot, lot more of the county to put these in. Um, so that's what I've seen. Um, that's really all I can contribute to that part. Yeah, really the control of impacts is just what they can do with the turbine itself and, and not as much with, you know, things outside the turbine as far as the manufacturers. Yeah, but just from a noise perspective um, on that question, they do get louder the bigger they get, and that's both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a bad thing because it gets louder. You know, you got a little bit louder source, might have to have a little bit larger setback. But the good thing is, is that, well, if they were staying the same, then that means that they were holding back to begin with, right? If they've got better noise control on the bigger ones than they had on the smaller ones. That, and, but that's not something we're seeing. We're seeing that, you know, they are what they are. They do the best, they do the most that they can with noise control, um, even coming up with these blade ideas and other things to try and incrementally bring that noise down. And um, so 
about all I can add. And they have um, some of the SCADA systems, the supervisory control and data acquisition systems have a noise reduced operation mode option too that some of our projects have used. Uh, can I ask Charlie just to follow follow up to what Charlie was asking? So, um, it, from how the industry is evolving, it sounds like battery technology is evolving along with it, just because you know if you can't store the wind and you, you, and you, you, as it's generated, it's a just in time thing. You use it and, or you lose it. Um, are you guys seeing an increase in battery technologies? Are they going on site? Um, you know, what, what how is that? Where is that in the in the whole scheme of things? We're seeing a lot more uh, battery storage projects just by themselves in addition to associated with solar and wind projects. And we're seeing a trend kind of towards these mega projects where um, a developer will acquire a really large site, hundreds of thousands of acres, and plan to do maybe all three of those things on that large site, like wind, solar, and battery storage, or wind, solar, and you know hydrogen, or something like that. Um, kind of have a generation hub on a very large area. So do you think, when we're thinking of regulations, we should be thinking about that? We should be thinking about batteries? Or do you think that, given the nature of, I mean, would it depend on the project? And if it's a small scale project, 90 wind turbines, it's, it's not something that would come into play? Or how would, we, how would we decide if we have to think about that when we're looking at regulations? Like, you know, regulating battery batteries and things like that. It might be more of a concern um, once the project gotcha. uh, is sold to its ultimate owner, like someone like Evergy, and then they might be considering battery storage because they're the ones who uh, provide the energy. So it might be um, something to look at after the developer hands off the project to its owner. And, and another, sorry, just one last question on this. So it sounds like one of the limiting factors of wind has been like just a way to store it or, or, with the batteries and such. Are you are you is that gap closing to, to where we're getting to a point where it, it's not as much of an issue as it used to be where, you know, we, with, with batteries and, and stuff, it's, it's feasible now to have it be a reliable source, maybe even a, ba it's, is, it a is it even considered a base load at this point? In some places it's almost based load, but not quite. I don't think we're quite there yet. It's still developing the technology to store the amounts of energy that people will need to draw on for base load. Okay. We had an uh, important topic for sure. We had put battery storage, substation stuff into its own category separate from, 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 from the generation. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely important, though. Yeah, I, I guess that brings up a, a point on the, it, it, the, certainly from a noise perspective, may be applicable to other parts of the regulations, is that oftentimes I see. Um, uh, areas, jurisdictions, planning commissions for counties or townships or whatever that will put into place very stringent noise regulations for things like wind energy, but then there's no other noise regulations on the books for any other sources. Mm. And battery energy storage is actually, you know, even though it takes up a much smaller footprint, battery, battery energy storage can be louder than a, than a the comparable wind turbine and you know siting that near a road where there's some homes that can be a much bigger concern from from my perspective in terms of noise control than than a than a large wind park um so uh, i guess that that kind of lends itself to 
great that we're focusing uh, the efforts on wind energy and there should be regulations in place for that certainly but also you know make probably want to double back and make sure that there's regulations in place to control all the other possible noise sources that um and i, I don't know douglas county may already have that covered but um i should think of so. great point so topic of setbacks, the topic of site placement, the topic of tower heights, are those all for our missing guy? No, we can all answer some of those. Is it okay if I jump in? Yeah, those. So, yes. so we're thinking about, uh, let's talk about setbacks um, for a little bit. Um, uh, so I, I looked at regulations in 20 different counties across Kansas. Um, seven or eight of them have a setback of like 1,500 feet, and that seems to be commonly talked about as a as a setback distance. Some go to 2,000 feet. I think I found one that was at 2,500 feet. Is there something about that 1,500 foot number that isn't just an industry standard, but has some relevance in terms of the different kinds of things you're that that county governments are seeking to to manage around the placement of a turbine are there any other recommendations that you would make do you see any other any other approaches to that that um, help to satisfy for sound and visual and and any other risks that might be there um, that one really is an industry standard, and I don't know the origin of it exactly. Um, it used to be around 1,250 feet, and that's migrated up towards 1,500 with the larger turbines. But I think that's just generally considered a protective distance for most residences between them and a turbine. Protective from, from fall and, and slough and that kind of thing? Yeah, just to place it far enough from, from noise and potential falls and everything like that. That 1,500-foot does that somehow correlate then to the 45, <clears throat> excuse me, 45 decibel number as well? Generally speaking, yeah, it's going to it's going to fall in that range, sure. Okay. Surely, there's more questions or comments around setbacks. So, Jeff, on the setback thing, um, so it's let's say it's at night. Uh, how far away am I going to? potentially hear the um, wind turbine. Rural, rural, rural that is, yeah, that's, uh, that can vary very considerably um, from, um, I mean, and, and it can even, the atmosphere can do strange things to sound. <laughs> so, yeah, especially when you get at greater and greater distances. Generally speaking, most rural areas, like I said, probably in, in, in our part of the world, most rural areas are getting down into the mid-30s, maybe upper 30s, some places. Uh, so if a turbine's at 45 dBA, you're going to be able to hear that at, um, I, would, I would say it'd still be faintly audible at, at maybe a half a mile away, Fain. probably getting, yeah. I mean, not not to the point where it's like, oh, that's a wind turbine. It's more to the point of well, what's that? What's that faint noise I hear? <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not necessarily distinctive at that distance. So, because they're not very loud, relatively speaking. So, so I can test this. So, we, had, we when we're thinking about our sound, we're thinking about 45 dBA 
or the lesser of four, uh, 45 dBA or ambient plus five. And the idea was that in an area with a really low ambient sound, that would become then the standard and we wouldn't want much above that you know, for that exact purpose to try to create an environment where they're not going to be heard by a non-participating landowner. So if, if you hear about that, if, if you hear that, that in that logic, does that make sense or do you still think that it ought to be the greater of? Uh, my opinion on it is it ought to be the greater of the two. Um, and that's purely based on, um, there's, it's been well documented that once sound hits, a, once sound gets down to a certain level, complaints get far less frequent. And that level tends to be below 45 dBA. Even if you so can hear it in a 30 dBA environment, yeah. it doesn't matter. Right, right. It's it's like, um, yeah, I don't know. What, I don't know what to compare it to other than you know when we were in the when we were just I have this fresh in my head when we were in the wind park last week. You get out of the car and all the, if all the wind turbines are spinning in the vicinity of where you are, it, it the the thing that I can relate like compare it to the most directly is it sounds like a, a freeway at a like that's very far away. You know, and it's like you almost have to go. Well, yeah, I guess, I guess. Oh, what's that noise? <laughs> it's not like, oh my gosh, it's it's overwhelming. It's it's quite the opposite. So, I, don't I don't know if that helps. That's just my that's just my experience. So, um, I'd also like to clarify: our setbacks and our noise standards are currently written in such a way where it's not the setback to the person or the house; it's the setback to the property line. So, in addition to 45 sort of being what we're talking about it's not 45 to the exterior of the house as you currently see it or as you frequently see in regulations it's that property line so then it would be even quieter presumably to the house or to the person and that's the same way with the setback to yeah. non-participating it's yes. setback to their property line not necessarily them so there's additional distance built in I don't know if that helps with sort of what we're getting at trying to make it as least impactful as possible and that is true for for some residents out in the county for some their houses and their properties are small enough we know at least yeah. one individual five acre lots and things yeah and some people build on a property line i mean yeah 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 and Jeff, the acoustic models you were talking about, can those be um, modeled like with nighttime sound as well? Uh, the the uh, the models the models uh, are agnostic in terms of time of day. Um, they just predict the sound radiating from the from the source uh, to a receiver, and mm -hmm. the con the conditions are what you start to look at to distinguish between daytime and nighttime, and that's a little bit more subtle. Um, but the good news is is that most of these acoustic models have all kinds of uh, conservative uh, s default settings built in. For example, the the biggest one um, is that the acoustic models. Uh, assume that every receiver is downwind of every source. So in other words, if you have a wind turbine and there's four homes located around it, the model calculates the noise to those homes as if each one of those homes were downwind. And 
that is not a case you can really have in reality. So, so by nature, that is a conservative approach to the to the modeling because then it combines all the sound from all the sources and winds up with a level that's probably a little higher than what you'll actually measure once you get out there, which is what we find when we go out there and measure. So, I see. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I think that I, I appreciate the information you guys have given us. The, the tension that we are faced with in making regulations is where on the one hand you say, well, I step out of my car and I hear a sound and I'm not quite sure what that is. Maybe it's a distant freeway when it's really the wind turbine, however far away it is. That's where people are saying to us, I step out of my house right now and I don't hear a freeway in the distance. I don't, I don't hear, and it's that value, it's that tension right there between those two things that we are charged with writing <laughs> regulations that uh, only one of us on the uh, ad hoc committee is a Solomon-esque, and um, it is not me. And I think that's, that's what it takes to write regulations, um, to have some sense of that. Solomon-esque. <laughs> Biblical splitting the baby. Who's the one person is? Uh, I, I, if you have I, to I, ask, you're not the person. I'm completely confused. All right, okay. This <laughs> <laughs> public public call here. So, so um, that is that is what we're faced with, and I think so far you have given us really given me helpful information. Um, I'm sorry we don't have. Can I ask the, another the rest question? of the crew? I want to ask another question here. I want to get into setback and visual and tower height we've been we've had some conversations about the visual impact of um, wind parks duck park rather than farm better than i like i like the word wind, wind park, park rather i like that better um, i have a 150 acre farm so i so we've had some conversation about the visual impact of this and they are they're big and we thought, well, is there, is there some combination of setback and tower height that might be an optimal, least impactful, but still industry um, enabling, I use that word, um, uh, combination that you've seen? Um, that I do not know for sure. I know that usually see for mitigation is you know matte paint colors um, things like that to make them the least reflective that they can be there's really no way to hide a 500 foot turbine um, even at a setback distance so um, the visual impact is one that's hard to mitigate actually yeah yeah um, if i could maybe add a little bit you know i've worked around turbines a lot i mean there does become a distance to which you are approaching a turbine to which you become acutely aware of how large these structures are. And I think that's probably the point at which if you stay beyond, it's probably less disruptive. It's kind of that more near 
area i mean i'd subjectively say within a couple like three to five miles your brain starts to understand that gargantuan sizes of these and that's where it becomes more disruptive um but as for an industry standard distance i don't think there is one um one thing to consider with setbacks though is you just look at something like douglas county you do have clinton lake you know you have these larger rivers you know the kansas river the wakarusa maybe you have other recreational areas or state parks what have you i think that's where you know we've seen a lot of development in which uh, these wind energy companies kind of they want to build where they want to build and then trying to push them away from areas seems like a harder battle once they've set their sights on a specific location so maybe just something to be a little proactive with i mean as you you know your county well and you know how proximity of these turbines to areas where would people congregate or recreate um you know considering setback distances that could be appropriate to ensure that you know their enjoyment of those areas isn't disrupted as, as severely as it could so Thank you. I think another aspect of visual impact, which um, Stacey and Sandy have already addressed in the draft regulation is the lighting at night. Um, if you require developers to use the um, aircraft detection lighting system, then the lights will be on only when an aircraft is, is detected right in that wind park area rather than all the time. So that definitely is helpful. For sure. Do you ever look at um, population per square mile? Um, that's like what Jeff was describing when um, Steve Block and his team are doing the site layout for the wind park. They will go and count all the houses and, you know, they don't necessarily do population per mile, but they look at population um, where the optimum areas are that we can place turbines and they try to um, keep all the setbacks from all the residences so that it has the least impact possible. We have 10 minutes. Thank you. Um, can we jump to wildlife for a minute? Um, we, uh, I, I've read through the, the feedback you've, you've provided um, on some of our questions around wildlife, and I want to jump right into the topic of um, uh, protected species and non-protected, but, but birds like bald eagles. We were surprised not long ago to learn that uh, their bald eagles are no longer considered a critically endangered or protected species. And we're a little bit confused about, uh, at least I am, a little bit confused about how the industry, how regulation is, is set up to protect them. Um, can you talk a little bit about your understanding of um, eagles, raptors, other protected species, and how that should show up in our regulations? So um, I guess when it comes to avian species, um, yeah, definitely the, the bald eagle has been delisted. It's no longer under the Endangered Species Act. Though the bald eagle and the golden eagle are both protected under the what's called the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act. Um, you cannot take those eagles without a necessary take permit. Um, 
golden eagles would be more of a transient species in Douglas County. It would be moving through. Uh, bald eagles could be a resident and likely are around some of your larger reservoirs. They're very common now. Um, a, a way to deal with that is pre-construction surveys for any given site. You would, uh, you know, assess you know, eagle use and proximity to known nesting areas or, you know, other habitat they would otherwise use. Um, bird species in general, there's over a thousand protected by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, just general songbirds. Um, again, um, and it doesn't cover just songbirds, it covers, you know, waterfowl and shorebirds, et cetera, um, that migrate through. Um, again, pre-construction surveys determining what's using the landscape. Um, Indeed, at the work of the Fish and Wildlife Service, um, they oversee the MBTA. Um, as for other TNA species issues, you are in the range of the northern long-eared bat. Uh, the northern long-eared bat is listed as um, endangered now, um, but you're on the very western edge of their range, um, and they're very rare. Um, to capture anymore that their population has been pretty decimated. Um, it'll likely be an issue for any wind, wind park that would build in Douglas County, I'll bet, um, something that can likely be mitigated through, um, I guess, analyzing what those impacts would be and trying to minimize that through some conservation measures. Um, prairie habitat in general, if there's native prairie in Douglas County, um, there's some species that utilize that, the prairie fringed orchid, it's a flower. Um, again, ethical siding, you probably wouldn't want um, an out-of-state wind company to otherwise develop um, native prairie habitat within your county. I think that would likely be going the wrong way with conservation. Um, and I think maybe to leave you with something as we're nearing our time here, um, any developer um, that would uh, approach Douglas County, they should be well-versed in what's called the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service land-based wind energy guidelines. And, and let me just emphasize that. Um, that is the protocol of choice for the wind industry to adhere to, to to navigate all these issues you're bringing up here, Gary, about eagles, songbirds, other teeny species. Um, if a developer follows the land-based wind energy guidelines during conceptual layout all the way through construction, they're going to have a really good roadmap on how to minimize impacts to these kind of resources. So that's something to be aware of and you you know short of making it a requirement that your developers follow it, it they should be strongly encouraged to do so because it requires them to directly interact with the u.s fish and wildlife service throughout the process do you see most regulations requiring that to happen you know uh dusty can chime in here um but i'm i'm not aware of any you know county regulations and areas I've worked in that have required um, land-based wind energy guidelines, though there's, there's certainly um, 
incentives for a developer to do so. One is called prosecutorial discretion. And that is if they've tried to play by the rules and they end up, you know, they're a wind turbine strikes, you know, a, a teeny species such as a, a listed bat or a bald eagle, th there'd be some temperament there and how that developer would be treated. Um, there is some current um, events in which the, a developer, I believe his next era, was found in court to have not followed the wind energy guidelines and got sued to the tune of millions of dollars for taking eagles. So there's a relevant example. Um, Dusty, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I've not seen um, ordinances that explicitly require the wind or the land-based wind energy guidelines to be followed, but I have seen various ones that require, you know, you have to do an avian study, you have to do a cultural resources study, and they list the different studies that they want done instead of just saying, you know, nothing about the biological side of things or the cultural studies. Like some counties have no requirements around those things, but um, to me it's best to list those things to make sure the developer understands that they need to do them as a standard due diligence measure rather than just uh, the minimum that they need to get something developed. Would there be anything from a, a legal standpoint that would keep us from including that saying they've got to do it? What? Okay, all right. Well, it's, um, it's listed as a recommendation by the Fish and Wildlife Service, so even they don't require people to do it. So I don't know if there's a concern there between, you know, the county requiring something that even the federal agency who wrote it doesn't require. Um, that would be a legal question, I guess, but um, you could certainly um, try to do that if you want to be the most protective of your wildlife resources. Three minutes. Do you see any merit? You said typically it was between one and three turbines per section, 640 acres. Do you ever see that written in as a regulation? Um, I think I've only seen something like there shall be no more than X amount of turbines per section in maybe one or two different counties that I've seen. That's not very often. In Douglas County, there aren't many, many whole sections that people have 640 acres, but they're not contiguous. Um, but that would refer to 640 contiguous acres that, where you were making. Well, it, it, I think we we're just stating that regardless of ownership, that's kind of the layout that we usually end up with as one to three per section area. Okay. Um, one minute. Anybody else? A regular monitoring is one of the things that you. Quoted. I also thought it was interesting. Every 10 minutes, data can be every 10 minutes data can be gathered from these. What would you see as regular monitoring? It looked like it was all over the map on what regular meant. Um, as far as a certain subject area, or just just overall. Overall. For. Go ahead. During operation, are you meaning? Uh huh. Yeah, I guess when I think about regular monitoring, I'm thinking, you know, the turbine technicians are usually either close by at an operations and maintenance building for the wind park or they're right there on site. And regular would mean to me like, you know, daily, weekly, monthly kind of time frames for different things. Okay. 
Well, I, I don't know if you guys explode at five o'clock or if we just quit at five o'clock. But I'm looking at the second a, hand. We have a build, we have a building responsibility to stop. Oh. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here for all the prep you've done, yeah, folks. You. Really do appreciate you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks.